The reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 26. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Good morning, family. Good to be with you today. Nice to see you, enjoying this beautiful fall weather. I'm certain of that. Thank you, Keith, for the words at the table. I want to tell you, uh, if you understood what Jesus was getting at in Mark chapter 8, we could probably just pack up what we're going to do today and head on home because, as Jesus said, there's nothing in the world worth losing your true self over. That's what we're going to talk about today is our true self and finding what that true self really is, and Scripture is going to dig into that. And so, Keith, thank you for taking time to contemplate Scripture and reveal to us and lead our minds as we uh, commune. You know, we are transformed into the image of God, not just by learning, as we're going to hopefully do right now, but also by worshiping, which just means to bow your head and honor God for who He is and what He has done. And so if you've done that today, you've inched closer to transformation. And hopefully now as we are about the business of being exhorted in the Word, to learn the Word, we'll do the same as well. You know, we started last week. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the prophet of Jeremiah, our daily readings. If you're following along from creation to the birth of Christ this year, we're going to hover in the book of Jeremiah for a while. You know, it's kind of a big book, and uh, he's got an important role in uh, the history of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, uh, specifically those in Judah. And it's good for us to do that because Jeremiah actually lived in a world that was incredibly similar to the world that we live in. He, lives in a, he lived in a very, let's say, confused, fragmented, divided culture. It was a culture that was filled with deceit, a culture that was absorbed in pride, politically, socially, morally, and even religiously. In this world, it was a confusing time for them. No one in this world was aligned together. Very fragmented. What I mean by that is it was not a a unified nation, a unified city, a unified people that all agreed on the big questions of life, of why we are here and what we are to do and what is right and what is wrong. In fact, that world disagreed greatly. There were a bunch of different people that said a bunch of different things about big questions of life. Sound familiar to you? That's our culture today. We live in a fragmented world. Very much like the world of Jeremiah. You see, the sin of the people is being shown constantly in Jeremiah. So in our readings, you're going to read from about chapter 5 of Jeremiah this week to I think about chapter 15 or so. And you're going to see 
the sin of these people being revealed. It's shown in their hypocrisy. It shows up in their deception. It shows up in their self-trust or their self-reliance. This community that Jeremiah is talking to values pretense over substance. In fact, God is going to say, you claim to have peace, but you've done it superficially. You haven't changed. He's speaking to them in the midst of a spiritual revival, you might say. They're under King uh, Josiah in this moment. And um, Josiah has just, because he's ordered some people, most likely it's Jeremiah's father, we think, that finds the book of Moses, the law of Moses in the temple that has been run down and hasn't been used for a hundred of year, hundred years. And they find it, and Josiah is reading the law of God finally for the first time in a couple generations. And he tears his clothes and he says, we've got to restore ourselves and get back to God. And he orders that the temple be restored and that people get their jobs back in the priestly and Levitical work. And then he commands that the largest Passover in the history of the Hebrew people be held. Thousands of offerings. Thousands of things brought for the feast. And in all of this religious uh, uprising, spiritual revival you might call it, there actually are very, very few people that are changed. Most of it's pretense. Most of it's a show. And so the section from Jeremiah 7 to Jeremiah 10 falls right into 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 where they're going to the temple to worship. And chapter 7, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to stand at the door of the temple and tell these people not to trust in the word that says God is our God and we have his law and we are his people. He's saying, scream at them. Do not trust in the simple fact that you have found the law of God and you're just keeping the Passover if it's not real. Boy, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, their world is our world because their problem is our problem. Mankind, since the fall of Adam and Eve, have not changed at its core what our problem is. And so sometimes, as C.S. Lewis called it, we have generational snobbery, where we think that we're like way smarter than people that lived 100, 200, 600,000 years ago. You know, we're way, way more advanced. We've progressed. We're much smarter. Uh, He called that generational snobbery because it's simply not true. We might have different toys or fancier items or higher class technology or something along those lines. But at the core of humanity, our problem remains the same. And that's revealed in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Look carefully at this. That'll set us up for the uh, next few verses. But here's what Jeremiah is going to tell them what their problem is. Um, Verse 12 says, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord been spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and the laid waste in the wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, verse 13, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. You see, these people have abandoned, like all peoples, in all generations, at all times, in all cultures, walk away from quiet, humble, obedient submission to the voice of God. We've all done it. Every one of us. But here's what happens. Listen to the end of this. So so these people have forsaken the voice of God. They've stopped listening to God. And in most cases, when this happens, 
Here's what people say. Look at what Jeremiah says. You're going to find something Jeremiah is going to say that would fit completely into our culture right now. They've forsaken the law of God in verse 14. They have stubbornly followed, look what he says, their own hearts. How familiar does that sound to you today? That we should just follow our own hearts. You should just be true to thyself, right? And just do what you feel is inside of you that is being true to who you are. Follow your own heart is the motto of our culture like it was the motto of Jeremiah's culture. But here's the problem. Following our own heart is not really the truth of what happens. When you forsake the voice of God, do not believe the lie that you become an autonomous, self-governed, self-ruling being that can just follow your own heart because your own heart is king. That's not true. That is the great deception of Satan. That he tells you that you ought not to follow God and you ought to become an autonomous being that can decide what is right and wrong, that you can do what you want to do because following your own heart is where you'll find the greatest pleasure. Look what he says at the end of this, verse 14. They have stubbornly followed their own hearts and there's always an and in forsaking God. Walked, pardon me, and have gone after the Baals. This is a fundamental truth that you've got to understand if you're ever going to uncover the lie of Satan and be set free from what he's trying to do to you. Following your own heart sounds attractive, but you were never designed to be autonomous. In fact, you can't do it. What you will do is replace what you were supposed to have with God, which is obedience, submission, trust, approval, affirmation from God, and you will transfer those divine attributes to something else and let it become God to you. You don't exist in a vacuum of self-autonomy. It never works. You will take what you're supposed to be with God and you'll transfer that to something that is not God. That's what happens in sin. And now here's what we're going to see. You see, you and I were designed to serve something bigger than ourselves. We were designed to be defined by something outside of ourselves. We were never designed to define ourselves. And you were designed to find your internal approval in something beyond you. And when you depart from God, you will carry with you all of these needs to something that is not God, and you'll ask something other than God to give you purpose, to give you identity, and to give you value. Because you were supposed to get those from God. Now our text is going to show us the great disaster of sin, the, the problem that results because of this sin, that we transfer all of these things to something that's not God. The text is going to show you the great disaster that happens in our life because of this, and then we'll see a quick glimpse of what life can be without sin and our way to get there. We'll be able to do it pretty quickly, so let's dig into that. Look what happens the great disaster in verse 23. Jeremiah says it this way, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his wisdom, in, in his um, might. Pardon me. So, the first and great disaster of sin is this: when we transfer from quiet, submissive obedience to God and listening to His voice to something else. Here's the great disaster: that you become a distorted 
version of you, not the real version of you. You become a distorted self, a broken identity. Now, you might be thinking here, um, I'm me, right? Like, like I, I hear what you're saying, but, but I'm me. I know who I am. This is what it is. What you see is what you get. Hear me out for a minute and walk with me through the diagnosis of this, and I think it'll make sense to you, and then we'll be able to put it together. There's one verb in verse 23 that shows up repeatedly, um, and it's kind of strange. Did you pick it up, what the verb is? Verse 23, let not the wise man do what? Boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast. The word boast. Now, it's a really unique placement of that word. It's kind of strange, actually, that Paul would use, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah would use this here. Um, but it's intentional. It's very purposeful. In fact, um, the translators kind of struggle with what to do. So some of you might have an old King James version. It says the word glory. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. What he's getting at here is this word. It's a very familiar word. You've probably heard it. It's the word hallelujah. Heard the word hallelujah before? You usually probably have heard the word hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise be to Yah, Yahweh, God. Hallelujah means praise. But here's what's strange about this word. It's not used in the form that says you should praise wisdom. Like we would say hallelujah, praise be to God. It's not used praise be to wisdom. That's not how he's using it. He's saying, let not the wise man get from his wisdom the praise that he needs. It's called the reflexive form of the verb. Does that make sense? What he's saying is, don't let the wise man or the rich man or the powerful man get from his wisdom, his power, or his riches the praise to himself that he divinely needs. The approval, the affirmation. The identity. Do you see what the broken nature of sin, what it does to us? What we do is we take from God what he's supposed to give us and we ask from things that were meant to serve us that become our masters to give us our identity. What he's saying is those who are wise do not pursue the praise that your heart needs, the approval that your heart needs, the worth, the identity that your heart needs from your wisdom. And this is the destructive nature of sin, that we build our identity on something other than God. It's the universal problem of mankind. So here's some help in diagnosing this for yourself. This is the private work that you have to do on your own, apart from me, apart from here, that you've got to do. But I want to give you some help to really dig into some diagnosis, because what you'll find is that most of us in this room build our lives on really good things but we're never intended to be God things to us. But we take good things in our life that we love and that were meant to be in our lives, and we make them things that are God that we're not supposed to be. So here's some things that you can ask yourself. Three Ps. This is what preachers do. We alliterate things so you remember. It never works, but we, we like it. What do you protect? What do you promote? And what do you provoke in your life? And if you'll ask yourself those things, what do I protect the most? What, do I, what, what sparks my emotions quickest? What brings the hair on the back of my neck standing straight up as quickly as possible in my life? What do I protect? 
What do I promote? What do you talk about all the time? What If you have an empty space in your moment, in your day, which not all of us do, right? But if you do, what do you think about the most? In fact, one person said, our religion is what we think about when we have nothing to think about. That's our religion. When you have nothing to think about, what fills your mind? What do you promote? What do you talk about mostly with your friends and your family? What is on your mind all the time? And the last one was, what do you provoke? Meaning, what do you stir up like a stick in a dying fire? What do you keep alive in you? What do you look at and say, how dare you try to go out? Don't you ever try to go out. I need you to stay alive. What, what, what do you provoke in yourself? What things in your world define your life the most? And the question then is, what things do you use to give your life the worth, approval, and value that you think you so desperately need? Because we do. There's a lot of examples. Um, you could say, maybe say, let not the guy who thinks he's funny boast in his humor. There's a mirror in front of me. Um, let not the person who has influence, because influence is not bad. Let not the person who has influence boast, get his praise from the fact that he can influence things. Let not the person with money, money is not sinful. What Jeremiah is saying here in verse 23 is not that wisdom, money, and influence are bad. Let not the man who has money Get his praise from the fact that he has money. Let not the person who has access to higher echelons of society boast. Get his praise from the fact that he has access to those places in society. Let not the person who thinks he's unique and different, snowflake of the world, get his praise from the fact that he's different than everybody else. Let not the person who has access to amazing experiences. This is a huge one in our culture right now. I think this is why like Instagram and Twitter and all that is, exists. So that we can promote the unique experiences that we have in some way. Let not the person who has unique experiences get his praise or her praise from that. Let not the man or woman who is religious get his praise from his religion. Let not the father or mother boast or get his or her praise from the fact that they are a good father or mother. That is not the thing that will give you approval in your life. Our job or our perfection, the list goes on and on. Now, I want to stop here and speak to another group of people. Because some of you in here may be saying, hold, like, stop the train, hold up. I don't actually believe any of those things. I don't have any of those. In fact, there's not a thing in my life, if you ask me, that I feel like I could boast in. There, there's nothing that I would promote of myself. There's nothing that I feel confident in, in myself that I draw praise from from other people. There's nothing. In fact, when I look at myself, I kind of despise what I see, so I don't boast. Hang tight with me for a minute. I'm going to try to show you this as well. You see, Jeremiah lives in a very traditional culture. Um, high self-esteem was something that was not taught in his culture. In fact, they believed that the way that you controlled behavior and that you increased performance was to continue to keep people's esteem low. You know, like, make sure people are ultra humble. They don't think highly of themselves. They, they have a low self-esteem. This is still true in traditional cultures, mainly in Asia, um, where that still happens, where people are, if you keep esteem low, crime rates will be down and performance will be up. That's the culture that he lived in. And so 
Um, our culture, in comparison to that, has done a 180. In fact, if you go to most of the schools or the workplaces, we believe that people perform academically better and do less crime if their esteem goes up. So we think people don't perform well or do bad things because they think bad about themselves. And so what we've got to do, if you see this across our nation, is we've got to raise people's self-esteem, right? Then they'll stop doing crime and they'll perform better in schools and they'll do better in their job if we can just make everybody feel better about themselves. Well, those of you living in this high self-esteem culture, let me just tell you, that's the culture we live in now. You take all of us and put us in a traditional culture, we would value low self-esteem or keeping it down. We just live in a culture that values right now high self-esteem. But to those of you living in this high self-esteem culture who look at yourself and say, there's not a thing in the world that I esteem, all you're experiencing is the rebound response to the cultural mindset that high self-esteem solves our problems. This tension always exists. On one side, you have those that self-love, self-promote, self-esteem, that adore themselves. Let's just be honest. And on the other side, you have, as a natural response to us valuing self-esteem, we have those that look at themselves and self-denigrate, self-hate, and self-pout. In response to high self-esteem culture, which category do you fall into? Do you feel like you're nailing it right now? Like you've got the self-love? Or do you look at yourself and say, there's not a thing in the world that I believe in in myself? Here's the reality. Both extremes are what Jeremiah is talking about when he says boasting. He says you're drawing from either of those lists your identity. One side is negative, one side is positive. Both are what you're building your identity on. So if you fall into the other side of self-loathing, let's say you fall into that side, ask yourself, do you hold tight to your negative beliefs about yourself even when Scripture looks you in the face and says that's not true? Do you protect it? Ask yourself, do you promote those beliefs about yourself? So if somebody compliments you, do you say, no, 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 no way, never, not me. Do you promote those negative self-beliefs? Let me ask yourself, do you provoke them? As you see yourself starting to succeed or maybe feeling better about yourself, or maybe Scripture is telling you, infusing you with worth from the love of God, do you take that stick like a dying fire and provoke, saying, but you're nothing, you're not worth anything? Do you not see that you're protecting, promoting, and provoking? Not a positive, but just a negative view of yourself. You're boasting. You're finding your identity in those things. So what's our answer? Self-love or self-hate? Should we just come in the middle and self-like? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm decent. It's fine. Is our answer just to give up on boasting altogether? How dare we boast, right? That's not what God says. Look in verse 24. He says, let him who boasts, boast in this. You see, our need, this boasting is not bragging about something else. This boasting is receiving your praise from something. He says, if you're going to receive praise, which we're all going to do, let him who is going to boast, boast in this. That this person understands and knows God. If you're going to receive value, worth, approval, identity, you're who you are. Receive it that you see clearly and know who God is. 
and you intimately relate to him. That's what understand and know means. He's repeating himself. When he says understand, what he says is that you see him clearly. That God, you understand his nature. You see who he is. That you know him is, a, is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A, right? That means I intimately know who God is. So if you're like me, this sounds great. It sounds exciting. Okay, there's our answer. That's what we all long for. The answer is not to cut boasting out or do a marginal amount of boasting. The answer is to draw every ounce of your identity and your worth and your praise and your approval from knowing and understanding God and that relationship with Him. Sounds great, but how, right? Okay, here's the vital, practical truth, and then we're all done. How are you going to do this? How are you going to know God? Because if you're like me, he's kind of this being that doesn't have skin on, that I don't really get. That he's kind of this mystical thing. When I start to pray, I just say church words and I just hope that it sticks. You know, I don't know. It's kind of confusing sometimes, right? I'm going to read some Bible verses and play Bible roulette where you just start flipping the pages and you put your finger down and read that text and maybe it'll tell you something. Knowing God is hard, first of all. Very hard. And I'm telling you right now, it'll demand the rest of your life. Just think about the effort it takes to know people in your world. And if you don't put any attention to those things, those relationships fall apart. God requires effort to know him. But here's the great reality of this truth. John 14, Jesus is there with his disciples. And he's ready to leave. And he says, I'm returning back to the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip was like, listen, hey, Jesus, if, you, if you'll just clearly show us who God is, we'll be good. That, that's what Philip says. It's kind of funny. He's like, Jesus literally just says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, like me and the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, great. Then Philip like, all right. But if you'll just show us who he is, then we'll be good. And you can just see Jesus shake his head. He says, I'm telling you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's the vital truth that you have to do for this to change in your life. You have to study, contemplate. You have to reflect upon. You have to gaze at and wonder about, like a person staring at a beautiful piece of artwork, wondering what the artist was meaning when he painted or she painted it. You've got to stare at it until the meaning of the artist becomes clear. You've got to look at the life of Jesus Christ. You have to know him inside and out. He is the full display of God, and in him you learn everything that is deeply true about God and deeply true about you. So where should you start, right? Where should we begin? Um, you know how the New Testament sometimes makes explicit what the Old Testament kind of implies? Well, this phrase from Jeremiah 23 shows up multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, Paul says it about three different times where he says, If anyone should boast, let him boast in the Lord. Galatians 6 is a great place for you to start. This sentence that Paul says, he says, God forbid that I should boast, draw my praise from anything except this. I will boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. You see, in the cross, we see a condensed portrait of God. If you read about, reflect upon the cross, if you will sit in moments of silence and ask questions to God about the meaning of the cross, all of the nuance of it, 
The cross will unveil to you God in ways that you've never known God. Specifically, Jeremiah says three ways. Notice three things that Jeremiah says in verse 24, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices three things. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. God practices those in the earth. Justice and righteousness meaning that God does what is right. God is just. He upholds justice. God is righteous that He always does what is right. At the cross, you see God being just. That the sin of the world at the cross is punished. That your sin is not swept under the rug. That it is punished. God is just. He does the right thing at the cross. And that He shows up in a righteousness to do what is right for us. As Paul would say in Romans 3, that at the cross, God is both just and the justifier of those that are lost. He does both. But there's a third thing at the cross you see that Jeremiah reveals. Um, some of you may have the word God's kindness. Any of you have kindness, loving kindness? Some of you might have steadfast love. It's a really unique word in the Hebrew. It's the word kased, which is the single word for the faithful covenant love of God. That you would know that God has covenanted himself like a husband to a wife. I vow to you myself. God has kased. He's covenanted himself to you. Where do you see that? How can you know that? The cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, you see the justice of God and the love of God come together. The problem of humanity and the perfected solving of God come together. When you see Jesus on the cross, what happens is he will begin to draw you to him. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw men unto me. When you stare at and look at and think about and study the cross to know who God is, it will begin to draw you not to religion to do certain things, but to God. And as you draw near to God, what you're going to find out is that not only does his love draw you, but his light will expose you. See, when you get close to God, he's going to start revealing things about you that are not true about you. He's going to start revealing things about you that were never intended to be in there. As, you, as the love of God brings you closer to him, his light is going to start showing you sin that is not the true, real you. But his love will keep you there. And if you'll confess, and if you'll repent, and be refreshed by grace, the love and the light of God will begin to transform you. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, that if you'll stare at the glory of Jesus, you'll be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You'll change. And you'll get the result, the only medicine. This is the process that Jeremiah is trying to introduce us to in a veiled way. He says at the end there that there are days coming that God is going to punish those who are circumcised, only in their flesh. He says all these different nations that are not Hebrew. But you notice he includes the Hebrews. And down at the end of verse uh, 26, he says, For all these nations are uncircumcised. And in the house of Israel, the house of Israel, they are uncircumcised, not in their flesh, but in their heart. What God is saying is that you have chased after in your heart, multiple gods. And what he offers in Jesus Christ is if you'll look at the cross and you'll be drawn by his love and you'll be changed by his light and it'll bring you close to him, he will circumcise, he will cut away 
all of those false gods that you run to. And he'll finally give you what you're always supposed to have, a single, dedicated, faithful heart to God. And when that happens, the true you will come alive. You're on on the beginning of an exciting journey because as as much as sin that still remains in me, there's still that much proportion of me that I'm still yet to discover, that I don't know the real me yet, the me that is never intended to have sin. And that's what God is inviting you into, to come near because of Jesus, to look at Him, to be changed by Him, and discover, maybe for the first time, who you really are. That's the offer of the gospel. What do you really think Christianity is? Is it religion to be observed and rules to be followed? Or is it life to be discovered? Jesus said it this way, right, Keith? Can you imagine living your whole life and forfeiting your true self? What would you give? What would you give to lose your true self? Gosh, it's available for you. Let's stand and sing.